Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 10th of July 2022, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, God's Big Plan, Which Bits Are We To Take Literally? Well, you won't need me to tell you that there are plenty of objections that people have to Christianity. Probably the greatest, probably the biggest one, is, of course, the existence of suffering in this world. Christians claim to worship an all-powerful, all-loving God, don't we? But if that's true, why? You'll be familiar with this question. Doesn't he put a stop to all of the terrible things in the world? Most obviously, at the moment, those events in the Ukraine, but also more personal suffering that we might be going through as well, tough health issues and so on. It is a really important question. And it's a question that when we have the courage to really ask it, and we have the courage to wrestle with it, I believe actually leads us further into what the heart of our faith is all about. But there are other objections to Christianity as well, aren't there? Particularly its seeming exclusiveness in a world of diversity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what about all those people who, for whatever reason, don't believe in Jesus? Are they beyond God's love? Again, it's a vital question, and one that when we have the courage to ask it and wrestle with it, I believe leads us further into the heart of what our faith is all about. Facing, in other words, rather than dodging tough questions, is actually the key to our faith in Jesus Christ growing rather than staying still and then inevitably declining because it's not engaging with the issues surrounding it. But another objection that people have to Christianity is quite simply believing those things that we find in the Bible. So the Bible speaks of the world being created by God in six days, doesn't it? It tells us the story of Noah and the flood and of all those animals going onto the ark. It tells us the story of Moses leading the Israelites through the Red Sea and all those plagues that happened in Egypt beforehand. It tells us in a story that's probably less familiar, actually, a lot of people here will be aware of it, but a lot of our children don't know this story because often it's not particularly uh, done in Sunday school and so on. It tells us the story of Balaam and a talking donkey. The Bible also tells us about Joshua and the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down. And of course, it tells us that famous story of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. They're in the Old Testament, but of course, it's not just the Old Testament, which poses challenges for people to believe its stories. The New Testament presents us with Jesus' virgin birth. It presents us with Jesus' miracles, which of course come in various different forms. And supremely, it presents us with Jesus' resurrection, when God raised Jesus from the dead. And for some very sincere Christians, it's important to believe all of these stories, without exception, literally happened. Start doubting the literal truth of any of them, the thinking goes, and it's the slippery slope to people picking and choosing from the truth that God has revealed. Other Christians, at the opposite extreme really, don't have any problem with saying all of these stories, or most of them, are very definitely not literal. And they'll often present this as essential for keeping Christianity credible. And they might 
approach it in different ways. They might say that stories should be regarded as non-literal because they reflect a primitive understanding of life that we've thankfully now grown beyond. Or slightly more respectfully, they might say these stories are seeking to present symbolic rather than literal truth. They're important, but it's important we don't take them literally. And occasionally, these rows uh, become so big that they cause major scandals of national prominence. So in the middle of the 19th century, Charles Darwin published his On the Origin of Species, didn't he? Outlining his theory of evolution. And many at the time within the church were furious at this seeming attack on the truth, as they saw it, of Genesis 1 to 2. When I was a teenager in the 1980s, the newly appointed Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins, caused a massive outcry in 1984 by saying soon after his appointment, I think he had said this before, but it didn't really get picked up so much, that he didn't believe in the literal truth of either the virgin birth of Jesus or his physical resurrection. I don't believe in a conjuring trick with bones, I think he said. And in both cases, Charles Darwin and later David Jenkins believed that Christianity was perfectly compatible with taking a non-literal approach to the stories found in the Bible, even those which were seen as of central importance to others. Now, there is a sense, we've got to be honest about this, I believe, in which all Christians do this. The parables that Jesus told, for instance, are seen by virtually everyone as stories that Jesus made up. We don't have to believe in a literal lost son and literal wise and foolish builders to engage with the truth that Jesus was seeking to impart through those stories, do we? In fact, if we invested all of our energy in trying to prove the historicity of a genuine lost son and a genuine forgiving father and the sulky elder son and, you know, prove the literal existence of wise and foolish builders that Jesus was referring to, if we invested all of our energy in doing that, we'd almost certainly miss the truth that those stories are trying to convey. But the question which we're asking this morning is how do we decide? How do we decide which bits of the Bible we're meant to take literally? Are there some bits that it's vitally important to see as referring to literal events and others that it's not just okay to see as symbolic, are there parts of the Bible that it's pretty essential that we see as symbolic that we'll badly misunderstand if we see them as anything other than symbolic? And if this is the case, if there are some parts of the Bible that we're meant to see as literal and some bits that we're meant to see as non-literal but symbolic, how are we to decide what belongs in what category? How are we to escape the accusation we're just being arbitrary and we're just picking and choosing? What's our criteria to be? It's a complex question, a really essential one for us to think about and take seriously if we take the Bible seriously, and there are various things that I think can help us to start making a roadmap through it. And one of the things that I think can really help us here is when we recognise how much we've been influenced, all of us, by an event that occurred around 300 years ago. And that event was called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a period where many of the most valuable discoveries in math, science and medicine occurred, and all those things have been wonderfully important 
and we benefit hugely from them. But what the Enlightenment also brought with it was a philosophy that I want us to be prepared to question. Because the philosophy that arrived with the Enlightenment and all of the discovery of these amazing breakthroughs in science and so on, the philosophy that arrived with it, understandably really, given all of these discoveries, was one that privileged the sort of truth revealed by examination and reason. What the Enlightenment said was that the sort of truth that you could reach by empirical observation and analysis and so on, that was top of the tree. That was the most important type of truth. Other truth might exist, but if it did exist, it was less, less important, less valuable than that sort of truth. Now, there were fairly soon afterwards reactions against this. Romanticism sought to show that imagination and beauty were superior to reason in providing access to truth. And more recently, the movement known as postmodernism has suggested that because all universal claims are oppressive, people can only actually express what is true for them. That's why you'll get people saying, well, this is my lived experience, or this is my truth, what's yours? But despite that, despite the fact there has been reactions against the Enlightenment, we are real still, I would argue, children of the Enlightenment. I think that's still in many ways our default that we return to. And that's why we still tend to regard two plus two equals four, or if we're slightly more sophisticated, E equals MC squared, we tend to regard those sort of statements as conveying greater or at least more tangible truth than something like a poem, like Shelley's Ozymandias, that famous poem he wrote, or a painting like Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. We tend to regard truth that might be revealed through those sources as, well, maybe helpful, maybe at some degree, but it's not truth in the same way as 2 plus 2 equals 4 and E equals MC squared. And the telltale of this is when a child hears a story, say you're reading a story to one of your grandchildren or some young child, and you read the story and then they say to you, yeah, but, but granddad, is it true? And when a child asks that question they're normally reflecting that perspective that the Enlightenment gave us about the sort of truth that really matters. If it's literally true, then it's true. Everything else is sort of rather nebulous and inferior. But, and this is the really crucial point, this wasn't the case in the world in which the Bible was written. They didn't have that mindset that we've inherited People in the ancient world were more than comfortable with different forms of genre being able to convey truth. And they were particularly comfortable with the idea that stories or myths could sometimes convey ultimate truth more powerfully and more accessibly than a factual account of something. That was their mindset. Very different to the one that as a result of the Enlightenment we tend to have as a default option. And when we really think about this and we're honest about it, we know this already. So look at this statement up here. The stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, the moon will be turned to blood, and fire and hail will fall from heaven. And it continues. And over the rest of the country, there'll be scattered showers with sunny intervals. Now, the reason this is funny is because we all know 
it's a totally inappropriate mixing of genre. The first four lines there are clearly designed to be symbolic, aren't they? While those last three lines are the sort of thing we'd hear in a literal weather forecast. Those statements are clearly, self-evidently, not trying to do the same thing, are they? And it's silly and nonsensical and rather thoughtless if we treat them as if they are. So we're all actually capable of recognising genre and recognising that we have to approach them differently. And the fact is that we still use metaphor and symbol today. The problem is we don't always recognise we're doing it because we decode it so quickly. We're so familiar with it that often we decode it without even thinking. So I'll give you an example. Someone refers in a book or a newspaper article to the fall of Ber the Berlin Wall in 1989 as an earth-shattering event. Now, it is possible that someone could hear that and misunderstand it and think that in 1989 a literal earthquake happened in Berlin that caused that wall to fall down. But we all know that that would be a misunderstanding of the genre, don't we? We all know that the expression earth-shattering event isn't meant literally, it's meant metaphorically. It is referring to a literal event, the fall of the Berlin Wall did happen, but it's using symbolic language designed to draw out its significance, to help us understand the significance of that more. And of course, when we think about it further, we're also familiar, very familiar, with fiction conveying truth. A few years ago, I did a talk to our Widows Group Half Shares that I mentioned earlier about hope and its importance. I wanted to talk to a group largely composed of uh, non-churchgoers and non-Christians about hope and its importance. And I wanted to lead on to explaining a bit more about the Christian understanding of hope and, and the difference it could make. But when I did the talk, I illustrated it by showing the members of Half Shares clips from four films. And here are the four films I used. I used a clip from It's a Wonderful Life, the Christmas film. I used a clip from The Sound of Music, from The Railway Children, and from the more recent film, or 1994's Shawshank Redemption. Now, three of those films are completely fictitious. It's Wonderful Life, The Railway Children, and Shawshank Redemption are made-up stories. The Sound of Music is a heavily fictionalised telling of a true story. But they all convey truth about the power of hope, don't they? That's why these films stay with people. That's why they're so loved. That's why people go back to them again and again. It's not just purely entertainment. It's because it's speaking powerful truth to them. That's why they've had such an impact upon people's lives. And they should make us realise how wrong it is, and of course the same would apply to Jane Austen's novels, we could use plenty of examples. It shows us how wrong it is to use the word fiction to mean the opposite of truth. If someone makes a load of claims that we believe aren't true, we might say that's absolute fiction, isn't it? And we're using the word fiction as a synonym for untrue. But we shouldn't do that. Because true fiction and valuable fiction, obviously there can be rubbish fiction, but the best forms of fiction make an impact because they hold out real powerful and transforming truth. So all of that is by way of background to try and help us to think more clearly about this. What about the Bible? Well, just a glance at the contents of the Bible should be enough 
to make us realise that it contains multiple genres. We can't really escape the truth of this. The Bible contains a whole variety of different types of material. And when you think about it, almost by definition, we, we can't have the same approach to all of it. It would be nonsensical. So the Bible contains material that very definitely is seeking to present itself as a literal account of historical events. And what's interesting is that quite often it's signalling that more obviously than we realise. It's not just assuming that, it's often signalling that. You've actually often got the ancient equivalent of footnotes within that material to try and show how its information should be taken, particularly how it can be verified. So I'll give you an example here. This comes from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. In 1 and 2 Kings, we get accounts of the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, and a lot of it's, uh, you know, very historical, fairly dry information at points. But it's quite interesting some of the notes you get at the end of its account. So after we're told about the reign of uh, Jeroboam uh, the first, uh, the first king of the breakaway kingdom of Israel, it says this, the other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel. So what it's really saying at the end of that sort of short little section is, well, others talk about this guy elsewhere. If you want to find more information, go to that. It is, as I say, a bit like a footnote. It's saying this is historical. This is verifiable. That's the way you need to interpret this. And actually, it's not just in the Old Testament. When we go to the Gospels, the accounts of quite a lot of what Jesus does, but specifically his death, his burial, and his resurrection, are things that are verified in in some ways, a very similar way. So what we see in the Gospels when we read them carefully is we see the witnesses of these events flanked up fairly obviously. Some characters are named in the Gospels rather inexplicably. It's interesting that we get Jairus named. We don't normally get people named when there's a miracle. We get Bartimaeus named. And more recently, biblical scholars have started to suggest that this is probably because these were the people who verified the stories. These were the people who were there to say, yeah, no, they were still around in the Christian community, and they were there to say, yes, this is true, this actually happened. And we particularly get it, as I say, in the stories of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which, of course, are absolutely crucial and foundational. So here's an example from Mark's account of the crucifixion. Mark tells the account of Jesus being crucified, and he says some women were watching from a distance. And that's an important point about those who ran away and those who followed Jesus. But then he says this, and it's really quite significant. He says among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Salome. He deliberately has three witnesses named within that account. He does the same with the burial. And here's another example, just a little bit on, of the resurrection. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices to anoint Jesus' body. Why doesn't he just say the women, you know? Because the names actually matter. The Bible is clear that when it comes to some historical events, it's vital that they're understood literally. And our second reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians made that clear explicitly, didn't it? The resurrection of Jesus is something, Paul says, that it's absolutely crucial to understand literally. That's why I don't share the view 
of people like David Jenkins, the old Bishop of Durham, whom I mentioned earlier. Paul said this in our second reading, didn't he? The one Liz read. If the Messiah, if Christ has not been raised, if it's all just, you know, non-literal, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The reason why the physical resurrection of Jesus matters is because it's the definitive sign to us, isn't it? That evil, sin, and death have been defeated, and that we can have hope. That one day God will complete that process that he started on Easter Day of sweeping away everything that spoils and defaces and mars this good world that he made. That's why Easter Day is so uplifting. We proclaim the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And we say, yes, this happened, and yes, we believe in it. And it's why it's such a transforming experience. So some things within the Bible, and often they are signaled so that we know which category they come into, it is essential, I believe, that we take literally. Now that's not to say that there's not a degree of metaphor present in the way those stories are told to draw out their meaning. So when Matthew, in his gospel, reports the death of Jesus and his resurrection, Matthew says that there was an earthquake and that rocks split. Now, I remain open to the question of whether this is literal or whether it's doing the equivalent of saying that the resurrection was an earth-shattering event. It may be Matthew's way of using that sort of metaphor to describe a literal event, but to invest it with its full significance by using metaphor. It's an open question, I believe. But I think it very much goes for the apocalyptic language we find, for instance, in parts of the Old Testament, when it talks about the fall of great empires, if we go on to the next one. This comes from Isaiah chapter 14. How you've fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, you've been cast down to earth, who once laid low the nations. Well, Isaiah's talking in that passage, I believe, about the fall of Babylon. But Babylon was such a crucial power within the world that talking about its fall in a mundane sense wouldn't do justice to how significant this was. So very apocalyptic, descriptive, metaphorical language is used to describe this earth-shattering event, God bringing this terribly arrogant and oppressive empire crashing down. We see it also within, of course, the New Testament book of Revelation. Revelation speaks of the great whore, the great prostitute, and the beast bearing the number 666. Now, these passages, I believe, are talking about very real historical realities, just as Isaiah was talking about the fall of Babylon. The writer of Revelation is talking, I believe, about the nature of the Roman Empire, which was surrounded by so much spin and glitz and presented itself in such an untruthful way that the writer of Revelation wants to strip away all that spin and show the reality of what Rome was like. And he uses this deeply symbolic language to convey the spiritual reality of these very concrete realities. So it's referring to something that's literal, but it's using heavily metaphorical language in order to help us understand the truths, the ultimate truths, that the writers want to convey about what they're speaking of. 
But then there are other accounts in the Bible that I think go further than this in being entirely symbolic. So I've spoken already about Jesus' parables, parables being fairly obviously and uncontroversially of this nature. But so too, I believe, are other accounts that we get in the Bible, like the account that we get of creation. The story of Noah's Ark and the story of Jonah being swallowed by that big fish. All of these stories are expressing profound truth about God's relationship with the world. And every one of these stories is to be taken just as seriously as other parts of the Bible. But they're not, I believe, setting out to do this in the same way as other parts that are claiming to refer to literal events. So let's take the creation story. The creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, and there's two stories which actually are, 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 are different in their nature. The order of creation is different in them, which immediately suggests that they're not to be taken literally. But the creation stories are making crucial points about God creating a world that was good and giving human beings the responsibility to care for it. And one of the tragedies of people thinking that the only thing that really matters is whether creation literally happened in six days is that the theological points within these stories and their relevance for things like our care for creation then tend to get sidelined or even ignored completely. And I don't believe it's inappropriate to use the word myth for these stories, providing we understand and we're really clear that myth is not and never should have been a synonym for untrue. A myth is a story that seeks to proclaim profound truth in a symbolic way. And when we dismiss anything that might not be hard and literal as not valuable, we're simply buying into the Enlightenment view that E equals MC squared truth is superior to the truth contained in things like a, a wonderful poem like Ozymandias or a wonderful painting like the Mona Lisa. And we can go as far to say, I think, that some parts of the Bible may be described as fiction presenting profound and transforming truth. So think of the book of Job, 42 chapters in the Old Testament that explores the right and wrong responses to suffering. It's an open question about whether there was a literal Job. There is a Job referred to in Ezekiel 14, along with Noah. So it's not impossible at all that there was a literal Job. But that doesn't mean that the story hasn't been extended and opened up and to some degree elaborated in order to bring out the profound truths that the writer of that magnificent book wanted us to wrestle with surrounding suffering. It may be that stories like Ruth, Esther, and Daniel come into the same category. And sometimes we see stories in the Bible borrowed seemingly from the surrounding culture. There's a, a flood story, which is really very similar in a lot of its details to the story of Noah. Now, people can disagree about who borrowed which story from where. Some people think these are imitations of the biblical stories. Other people are pretty convinced that the Bible has borrowed those stories. But if it has, they're always decisively transformed. There's no example of something just being taken over and produced in exactly the same way. If they are borrowed, and I say if, they're also transformed. 
to represent the interaction of the covenant God of Israel with his people. And we also get very strange stories as well, like those ones that I got Katie to read earlier about Elisha. The reason I chose them, because in some ways they're the most problematic stories in the Bible. You've got that story of uh, those boys uh, or youths, we're not quite sure, sometimes it's translated as youths to make it a bit more acceptable, what happens, but they mock Elisha for being bald and those bears come out and maul them after Elisha has cursed them. But the other story can be seen as even more problematic, really, where someone drops an iron axe into a river and Elisha makes it float. How are we to approach those stories? Are we meant to take them literally? Are we in trouble with God if we don't? Or actually, are we meant to approach them rather differently? I don't believe it's disrespectful or not valuing those stories. In fact, I think it's, the, it's probably the door to valuing them to see them as folklore, used by the biblical writers to express the fact that God isn't just involved in the big national events on a big scale. He's also involved in the small day-to-day confusing realities of our lives, the times when we're angry and frustrated and get things wrong, the times when there are problems that happen that perhaps on a global scale are insignificant but actually do matter to us. Now, I hasten to add that there's room for debate and disagreement about pretty much all of this. And I think that's really healthy when we do that. One of the most unhealthy things we can do, I think, when we're a Christian is to think we're letting the side down by not being honest about our questions and not discussing things and not having the courage to ask the questions and put the points that seem to us to be the ones that need to be acknowledged. So debate... And disagreement, I believe, is quite healthy. But I do believe acknowledging the diversity of genre in the Bible is something that is so self-evident that we can't really avoid it. And so to insist on one approach to all of the Bible's contents is probably never going to get us very far in appreciating what is really crucial within the Bible and appreciating and respecting the Bible that God gave to us rather than trying to make it into something different. I want to finish with a sort of illustration drawn from another part of life. Those of us here who are parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts, hopefully, or have godchildren or whatever, hopefully have a really holistic vision for the development of our children and their education. So we want them to do well in subjects at school like math, science and history, hopefully, But most of us don't just want them to concentrate on those subjects. We want them also to love art. We want them to really enjoy and benefit from design and technology. We want them to get the most out of drama and sport as well. They won't necessarily be good at all of these things, but we don't want them to exclude any. We want them to get the full range of experience. We want them to experience if education is preparing our children for life in the future. We want to help them to experience the whole range of ways in which they can discover more about the world and its fullness. And approaching the Bible in the right way and getting the most out of it as a result is, I believe, a little bit like that sort of holistic vision. Just as we want a child to experience the full richness of what life has to offer, so we need to recognise, I believe, that in the Bible we've got the full range of different materials held out to us for much the same reason. 
to help to bring us the full richness of life in relationship with God that he wants us to possess. Sometimes said that some Christians are natural Paul Christians and some are natural John Christians. And what it means when that's said is that there are some Christians whose personality lends itself to appreciating the sort of material we get in Paul the most. And John's gospel is something, and John's writing is something which doesn't come quite so naturally to them as, as a form of, of, of conveying truth. And then there are other Christians who are the other way around. They're natural John people, and Paul is something they struggle with a bit more. And I've heard it said that part of Christian maturity is naturally John-type people becoming able to appreciate Paul, and naturally Paul people coming to appreciate John a little bit more. You might want to ponder that. But in overall terms, and this is the reason I started this talk in the way that I did, I believe it's yet another example of wrestling with the important questions leading to the development of our faith. When we don't duck, when we have the courage to ask such questions about what we're meant to take literally within the Bible and what we're, we're not meant to, I believe in both directions, actually, it can help us to go deeper into our faith. I think it can help us to recognise why it is absolutely essential that some things in the Bible, particularly those things the Bible expressly flags up as crucial to understand literally why they are so important. But likewise, it can open our eyes to some of the meaning and the power and the truth being conveyed by those stories that we really meant to understand symbolically. In overall terms, we need the courage to keep asking questions about our faith. However long we've been a Christian, it probably becomes more and more important the longer that we've been a Christian, to keep asking the most searching questions about the nature of our faith because it's when we're honest about those questions and we discuss them with our fellow Christians and we subordinate everything to the God revealed in Jesus Christ that we follow that I believe that our faith can continue growing and continue being relevant and transforming to not only our lives but the lives of those that we influence. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us in our ongoing journey of faith with you. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the Bible in the form that you've given it to us. And we're honest uh, about the things that we find more difficult and those things that uh, comfort us. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to continue growing and developing in the way that we respond to the powerful, transforming and glorious truth that you revealed to us through the Bible. Help us as we continue to seek to do this faithfully. In Jesus' name.